From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, we commemorate the birthday of the nation's 35th president, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. How is it that after more than 50 years since his tragic death, his legacy remains with us today? To begin the discussion, I'm joined by the chair of Wake Forest University's Politics and International Affairs, Dr. Katie Harriger. And after that, attorney and naval officer Chris Geis joins me to discuss how the Kennedy legacy has influenced him. That's coming up on The Public Morale. Welcome to the public morality. 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, the proudest boast was Kiwis Romanus Sum. Today, in the world of freedom, the proudest boast is Ich bin ein Berliner. There are many people in the world who really don't understand or say they don't. What is the great issue between the free world and the communist world? Let them come to Berlin. There are some who say There are some who say that communism is the wave of the future. Let them come to Berlin. And there are some who say in Europe and elsewhere, we can work with the communists. Let them come to Berlin. And there are even a few who say that it's true that communism is an evil system, but it permits us to make economic progress. Lassi not Berlin in common. Let them come to That was President Kennedy's 1963 speech in Berlin. It's hard to believe, especially if you're a baby boomer like I am, that John F. Kennedy was born 100 years ago. With the advent of television, his youth, charm, grace, elegance, along with his perceived vigor, has been chronogenically frozen in our minds. The Kennedy legacy is a mixture of hope, charisma, hypocrisy, and tragedy. Since his tragic death in 1963, there have been essentially two JFKs, the historical one, and the one of Camelot, which is largely a post-assassination creation. To begin the conversation delineating myth from reality, I am honored to once again be joined on the public rally by Professor Katie Harriger, the chair of Wake Forest University's Department of Politics and International Affairs. Professor Katie Harriger, welcome to the public morality. Thank you. Nice to be here. What, why is JFK still relevant in your view? Well, I think I think he kind of, to me, he represents the sort of beginning of the modern era in American politics. And I, I see that era as one that started with sort of great optimism in the post-World War II period about sort of what was possible in America and where we find ourselves right now, <laughs> which I think is a, a place of much more diminished expectations. And so I, I see him as sort of the beginning of this period that you might say is America growing up. <laughs> yeah, because because uh, the assumption was that we were, in the Eisenhower years, sort of a, a sleepy, 
um, content bedroom community. And so that's the assumption that, that probably wasn't accurate with all the things that are going on with the Cold War. But mm-hmm. but then the Kennedy administration sort of changes that, that view. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I mean, I, I think that that was when I sort of think about what he represented or came to represent, um, it is this sort of thing that anything is possible, you know, going to the moon, <laughs> um, you know, getting things right on civil rights, those sorts of things that we look back and see that as a, I would say, a time of great optimism and also belief that, that government could do something. Now, is, is it possible uh, even, you know, what uh, it's been, what, 54, 55 years since Kennedy was assassinated. Is it is it possible to delineate judiciously between the historical JFK and, and the one, I'm speaking in the course of the public discourse, mm-hmm. and between the historical JFK and the one of myth created largely after his assassination? I mean, I think it's possible. I certainly think historians have been able to do that, but that's because they're, sort of really looking at things in a very fine-grained kind of way. But I think you could say that he's, you know, our sort of perception of him has been so shaped by the development of television. Um, and so the so the sort of po- broader public understanding of him um, certainly, I think, is very different than what historians looking and understanding him and his place and his context would say. Now, you had mentioned um, uh, in your previous answer about the, the, the sort of um, uh, difference between, say, JFK and our current political times. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's actually, I find it rather ironic that uh, we would be celebrating the, uh, commemorating at least the 100th anniversary of JFK at the same time that we're um, probably uh, in the in administration we won't long forget, however mm-hmm. it unfolds. It's, so we couldn't have more diverse individuals than, say, President Trump and and JFK and in myriad ways. How would you say that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true in in many ways. So, so if you think about their um, inauguration speeches, for example, I think you would you would see this contrast that I was making earlier between sort of optimism and pessimism about sort of where we are and you know what's possible, what we can do, but. In some ways, they're they're both. I mean, I think you could say about JFK is he was the first sort of true television president, um, and certainly many people think that you know television is what helped him get elected um, because because of his image and how it contrasted with Nixon's. Um, and and then if you look at Donald Trump, I think he's he's almost completely a creature created by television, and so. There, there's the lineage, (laughs) I think, um, that that you could draw. Certainly, I certainly quite different. I think it seems in terms of sort of temperament and belief that government um, could be a source for good. Well, well, I'm going to stay with that. You mentioned about President Kennedy and television. I mean, he in effect uh, invented. the, the modern presence as we know it now, not only with the use of television, but he did live press conferences at, at, a, at a very rapid rate. Um, he was he was also the first, in my view, and I'm going to see what you think about this, to understand that you can't govern what the United States was at the time in excess of, say, 200 million people, 180 million people, with just programs. You also had to do it with words. So that sort of goes back to that, that being aspirational and, and what can be. Yeah, I mean... I think I'm not sure I would say he was the first one to recognize that. I mean, when you think about some of the oratory of Lincoln or of FDR, I think certainly if you think about FDR and sort of the way his radio talks sort of provided that kind of oratory and reassuring language. But I think recognizing how many more people you could reach with television. And and being so good on television <laughs> certainly, I think, began to show the possibilities, both both positive and negative, I would say, about the television age. Yeah. You, you know, I would argue, I would suggest, and I actually did suggest in my in my book on 1963 that 
the, the Kennedy had arguably the worst foreign policy year of any first-year president in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. I'm sp- thinking specifically of the Bay of Pigs. He had the horrible uh, uh, conference in Vienna with Khrushchev, and then the Berlin Wall goes up. And he then and also domestically he was with the freedom rights. He was caught flat-footed on on civil rights. Mm-hmm. And then you look by '63 that he had made tremendous strides. In all of these areas, does this? What do you attribute that to? Is this just something within him? Was the issues of the day? But but it's rarely do we see such strides made with with any of our leaders in such a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think the presidency is a huge learning curve, and so the danger is always, I think, in that first year of missteps and the realization that you don't control everything internationally. You know, <laughs> and I think it's easy when you know, people refer to the U.S. president as the leader of the free world to sort of imagine that you have more control than you have <laughs> over situations. And so I think it's not unusual to have missteps that first year. But I would say on his behalf that he was a very quick learner. I think he had a lot of smart people around him. Um, but I'm, I'm not one who thinks that – who subscribes to this sort of great man – theory. I think there's something always going on, both about the times and the person. Say, say and, more about the great man theory, because I know other scholars have, have, have attributed that leadership style to him. So. Yeah, and I, I, I actually think that's a um, that ignores history. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a version of history, but I think it ignores the reality of the, again, of the things that, that people don't control. And so it really becomes sort of how do they respond to those things? that happen? How do they understand the moment that they are in? And so, I mean, so it's, it, so the person matters, but so too does, does the broader context and what happens. You know, sometimes you might have presidents who really have very little challenges that they have to address and others, significant ones and how they handle those are, are sort of a measure of the man, certainly, but also of the time. You know, one of the things I've always thought about, and, and, and this is, uh, uh, I guess, part, part of your expertise, I've always assumed this, that um, uh, presidents on day one are greeted with the reality of the job, um, and and then they're greeted with the fact that the Constitution is written in such a way they don't have as much power to do what they think they can do. So, right. so, so the president creates this sort of, um, uh, uh, frustration by design. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and so then the, that's where I think the sort of personality of the of the man in the office um, really makes a difference. Is sort of how do you deal with that reality? There's a famous book by Richard Neustadt about presidential power, where he basically argues the president's real power is the power to persuade others, and so someone who has those skills, someone who doesn't take it personally, that they don't get their own way, someone who actually enjoys sort of negotiation and the sort of, you know, getting in the getting in the weeds of politics and engaging with others and making deals, you know, is generally going to be more successful because they understand how the system works or if they have some uh, people around them who understand that and they're willing to listen to them. Um, you know, that's the learning curve. But yeah, I think, especially when you think about when Kennedy came into office, you know, you have come out of World War II, you've come out of this huge shift in the nature of the president's role that comes about because of FDR, the the place of the U.S. in the world in the post-World War II period. Um, All of those kinds of things actually gave him much more opportunity for the exercise of power than um, I think presidents have right now, for example, where the the um, polarization and the diminishment of sort of confidence in government, I think, has made it harder for presidents to govern. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Professor Katie Harriger, who is chair. And I always get this wrong. I want to say political is political science and world affairs. What is it? Poli- it's politics and international affairs. Politics. And why can't I remember that? Every, <laughs> well, it's kind of long. <laughs> you have to every time we have you on, you have to correct me on the I, I, you know, politics and, and world affairs at Wake Forest University. And uh, Professor Harriger, um, now that we know more 
about uh, President Kennedy's personal dalliances, mm-hmm. uh, some behavior that I'm view, uh, in my view, uh, could only be regarded as reckless. Mm-hmm. Does that tarnish his legacy? I certainly think it has. Um, you know, I think that for a period of time after his assassination, um, he was riding pretty high <laughs> in terms of um, people's notions about him. And certainly that was also the case that we just weren't as polarized as a nation um, as we have become. But I think knowing the things that we know now about his personal life, in some ways we've gotten sort of, um, what's the word I want? I don't know if immune to those kinds of revelations is the right word. But if, if you think about some of the things that came out about Mr. Trump, for example, during the campaign that just sort of didn't seem to matter. What, what <laughs> you would been, say that we have somehow, you know, gotten over that concern. Uh, would, it, would it have to do that, that, that after uh, President King's assassination, do you think that because the mythology of Camelot just raised him to epic proportions mm-hmm. that, um, uh, at least for the Johnson administration, he, whatever Johnson did, he was always saddled with the what would Candy do question. So right. do you think that maybe because we lifted him so high that, that these personal balances became uh, more glaring? Yeah, I think that I think that's probably true. Um, you know, I also think that there was, not only was he sort of part of that mythology of Camelot, but so was Jackie, his wife, and, of course, a hugely sympathetic uh, character and his children, you know, and this sort of fascination and, um, I'd say, general public support for them that followed, in some ways, I think, made what came out about him more disappointing because it felt like, in some way, some betrayal, not not of the broader American public, but of a family that mattered to the public. Would it be fair to say the Kennedys were the closest that we have in American history to royalty? Yeah, I think I, At, at I a think time, so. maybe not now, but at, yeah. yeah. But at the time, yes. No, I, I, and sort of dynastic, certainly in the sense that of the brothers as well. Um, and, of course, that was tarnished by Teddy Kennedy and Chappaquiddick as well. Right. Right, I, uh, I, I, you were giving me a last answer. I was thinking about. Um, I, w- I always go to my grandmother's house, and right in the center of her china cabinet was this l- very large plate that had a painting of President Kennedy and Jackie. You know, right there front, mm-hmm. so you couldn't miss. I don't. I can't remember the last time I went into someone's home and they have a picture of any president. You know, like in the center case of their their china cabinet. So mm-hmm. it's a very, very, very different time. Yes. Yeah. And then I, re- I also recall, because this was my childhood as well, but I also remember pictures after Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King were assassinated of um, the three of them, of JFK, RFK, and MLK. Yeah, it was sort of like the Trinity, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. And then remember that song, um, Abraham, Martin, and John? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that doesn't sell today. That, that no, no one buys that today. Yeah. And we, we, we're, we're much more uh, cynical. Yeah. Um, does, uh, in your view, the, the JFK legacy create somewhat, um, uh, for lack of a better word, a sophomoric uh, response or desire that we need another, uh, we need another JFK, um, which sort of omits the times in which we live and, and um, I remember Ted Sorensen endorsing Barack Obama and comparing him mm-hmm. uh, to JFK. And and how was all that intertwined with the tragic manner that JFK died? So it sort of just, if we only had him back, our problems would be solved. <laughs> That's, yeah. I'm not advocating that position, by the way. I just right. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I do think there's always the inevitable um, – imagining of the counter narrative what if this you know what if this hadn't happened what if JK, jfk hadn't died you know there's a lot of um speculation that maybe we wouldn't have escalated in vietnam you know there's a whole disagreement about that and what would that have meant to us historically you know i i don't ever see much value in that kind of <laughs> speculation and i do think that the danger is 
but not, but I think we do this in the United States way too much is imagining that a single individual is the solution to our problems. And the presidency has become sort of imbued with that notion. Um, you know, oratory matters, but I think the expectations for Barack Obama were unreasonable given the way our system works just because he was a great orator did not mean that and any appeal to things people really want to be true about us right <laughs> mm. but i mean to me that's the sort of the limits of oratory as opposed to policy <laughs> if if you look at the you know the passage of the civil rights act um, lbj was not a great orator right but he was a great legislator um and so he accomplished what kennedy actually had not yet been able to accomplish. And the conf- I would argue the configuration of the Senate and the House at that time, it would have been, it'd be hard for me to imagine that Kennedy could have gotten that legislation through. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I do think that his, I mean, LBJ was smart to sort of recognize the martyr sort of stuff and use it. Um, but I'm, but I, I think passage had much more to do with, his brilliance as a negotiator and a legislator and all the work being done by the civil rights activists. Right. Yeah. Not to be forgotten. Right. Right. (laughs) And, you know, some of the interesting historical stuff that's been written recently about the civil rights act also suggests that, you know, sort of Midwestern church folk were also mobilized to pressure their Republican members of Congress. Yeah. And because um, speaking of the Midwest, I mean, Senator Everett Dirksen, the Republican leader, was was key to the passage of the mm-hmm. Civil Rights Act. Yeah, those those are, those are probably Dirksen would probably be a different type of Republican than 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 what yeah. we know today. Yes, yes, and so that's really what made the difference. Were were New England and and Midwestern Republicans, and there's really interesting work about the way the National Council of Churches mobilized people, you know, through their churches to lobby their legislators for civil rights. I mean, so it's, there was a lot happening on the ground that had nothing to do with JFK. <laughs> In addition to the obvious tragedy of, of, of a, a, a leader with in, enormous potential that was never met, uh, was cut down in the prime of life, um, for us as Americans, does the assassination um, sort of serve as an abrupt end to what was shaping to be uh, a great novel? Um, it would be like uh, Moby Dick before Ahab has the confrontation with the whale. <laughs> you laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it it's a great novel either way. <laughs> I mean, different outcomes. But um, who knows had he served, you know, that term and another term, what might have happened? I mean, I, I don't think we can know for sure, but I do I do think he was growing into the, the leadership role. I do think he had a lot of smart people around him who cared about policy, and I do think he had a public that was optimistic. Um, and we don't have that anymore. <laughs> and so it's, it, I think it's possible that Great things might have happened, and and, and because uh, it's also possible that the scandals and the things that he was involved with might have, you know, the, the nature of the media and their willingness to um, overlook what they know is going on was was coming to an end. Yeah. No, so, well, given that, just given 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 the totality of that answer. Is it you know like historians love to grade presidents great near great is it can we accurately in, in, in uh, grade um, authentically the Kennedy legacy in your view? I, I, I guess only to the extent that if we can accurately grade anybody, <laughs> I mean there is always the problem of. I'm sure your students would love to hear that answer. <laughs> <laughs> of course, they all think it's totally subjective. <laughs> but um, I, I just think 
distance makes it probably easier to make judgments than sort of in the immediacy of the moment. We can look back and say this was significant or this would have happened anyway. Um, but I, but I do think it's it's a it's a process fraught with with difficulty. <laughs> you know, when you when you look at, for example, the way Eisenhower used to be portrayed and the way historians see him now, he's certainly gone up, um, mm. and he had quite a different style, for example, than than well than any other president. Look at Truman. Truman's Truman. really climbing the yeah. pole since he left yeah. office. Yeah, and so so someone who's not um, flashy or hugely inspiring in any particular way, um, when you sort of look back at the historical record of their time and what was accomplished in that time, you it, you know it's easier to say, well, yeah, that was a successful presidency, and certainly at the time of their presidency, that was not sort of the general assessment. Well, I'm I'm, I'm waiting for historians to. Um use that analysis on the, the, the Nixon administration to see if uh, if Nixon climbs in the polls in our lifetime. So. Mm. Well, you know, already I think people say, of course, Watergate was the disaster of that presidency, but there were some there were some good things that happened. That outreach to China right. that perhaps no one else at that time might have been able to accomplish. Um, you know, Again, that, that's, I think, an example of of distance giving you perspective. Well, the Environmental Protection Agency was created sure. under Nixon, and, and uh, to much to his party's chagrin. Yeah, <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah, right. But, right. I mean, at that time, there was a, a broad consensus that the environment mattered. I mean, because people were seeing rivers on fire, <laughs> dead fish laying on the shore of Lake Erie. I remember that as a child. You know, it was it was pretty visible what the consequences of not regulating it were. So you, you mentioned a song earlier, Abraham, Bobby, and John, mm-hmm. uh, Martin and John. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I'm thinking of another song. I'm thinking of the Bob Dylan song, Times They Are Changing. Mm-hmm. So that's, <laughs> that's sort of where we are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Professor Katie Harriger, Wake Forest University, thank you uh, for being on the Public Morality Day. We've enjoyed it immensely. I enjoyed it, too. Thank you. Thank you. That was Professor Katie Harriger. Stay tuned as the public morality continues its centennial commemoration of JFK with a conversation with attorney and naval officer Chris Geis. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Continuing our commemoration of President John F. Kennedy's 100th birthday, I'm joined by Chris Geis, an attorney, naval officer, writer, and former reporter at the Winston-Salem Journal. Chris Geis, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you, Byron. It's an honor to be on your show. I'm I'm thrilled that uh, a show of this quality is in Winston Salem. Well, thank you. Thank you for those kind of remarks. You know, it's been 54 years since JFK was assassinated. It's doubtful that you actually uh, remember the, his presidency. I'm not actually trying to out your age, but it's doubtful you remember it. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll out myself. I was not born when John F. Kennedy was president. Okay. But you have. Uh, his photo hanging in your office. Why does the Kennedy legacy inspire you? Um, Again, I was born after John F. Kennedy's uh, presidency, but um, even as a young boy, I remember uh, seeing pictures of the day of the assassination and being uh, just deeply emotionally affected by it. And um, I don't know why I felt that way at that time, but um, I do know he was the first Catholic president. I'm Catholic. That might have had something to do with it. But as I grew up and learned more about John F. Kennedy and his character, I became really uh, attached to it. And, and here's here's what I want to focus on. Number one, um, he was um, selfless 
in in uh, serving in the military in World War II. He was a naval officer and risked his life to save his crew after a Japanese destroyer destroyed his patrol boat. Um, that speaks to the highest character in my view. And then when he became president, um, the defining moral issue of our times uh, domestically was civil rights. And he was the first president to speak out uh, in modern times on civil rights forcefully. Um, it was such a clear issue to me, in, in a black and white issue, and, and he stood on the right side. Well, uh, let's, let's start with, um, as, you, as you referenced, uh, PT-109. I, I think we should also add that you, too, are a Navy JAG. Is that correct? Well, I'm a Navy JAG. He was not a JAG. No, he but... wasn't a JAG, but you are. Yes, he was a real warrior. Uh, I've been a, I've been an officer in the Navy and the Navy Reserve for 20 years now, and uh, I'm, I'm an officer. I hold the rank of commander. I'm in the Judge Advocate General's Corps. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I really appreciate his service in the Navy and and to our country at large because uh, I'm a very uh, patriotic person. Yeah, so so you so you so you have you, you already mentioned the Catholic piece. I'm I'm see see where, where I'm going with this, Chris. Is I see a trend being established. You mentioned the Catholic piece. He also John F. Kennedy also served in the Navy. I mean, you still might give him credit for his service had he been in the Marines or the Army, but he did serve in the Navy, as you have. But now let's go to civil rights. Now, I, I, there would be some who might posit that. Kennedy was slow on civil rights. He was caught flat-footed. How would you respond to that? Well, I, I think you have to concede that um, he did not come around to the civil rights issue until later in his presidency. Uh, he was elected in 1960, and remember that he was elected in a very, very close election, 100,000 votes basically separating him and Richard Nixon. And he was elected because he carried the solid south, all 11 states of the old Confederacy. Um, by coming out for civil rights in 1963, uh, after uh, what had happened in Birmingham and, and uh, with Medgar Evers' shooting death, um, he was writing off uh, perhaps a good portion, if not all, of the south for the next election. And that was um, politically... Very risky for him. He could have lost the next election, but he wanted to do the right thing. He spoke clearly in a speech in June 1963, which um, I don't know of anyone who's better encapsulated those times in in those few days in 1963 than you in your book uh, about 1963. Um, but he spoke clearly and said, "This is a an issue that is as clear as the Constitution and." And um, as clear uh, as as uh, the scriptures, um, I don't remember the exact words, but he did the right thing. But by doing that, um, and he made up for lost time, I think. But by doing that, he put himself in political jeopardy. Well, I, I think you make I think you make a very salient point because you can look at. Uh, the 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 two plus years he was in office before he gave that civil rights speech is one area to say he moved slow, but at the same time, it was probably what a hundred years since Lincoln had uh, talked about black voting rights. So it, I guess it depends on how you look at it, uh, whether or not he was flat footed. So it's it's all a matter of perspective. Well, sure, and um, I think the only comparable action by a president uh, on the issue of civil rights between the time of the Emancipation Proclamation by Lincoln in 1863 and John F. Kennedy's speech in 1963 was probably Harry Truman's desegregation order for the military, which you know did a tremendous amount of good for the country. Um, and you can say that African Americans benefited greatly by the New Deal under FDR, and you can also uh, speak to Eisenhower sending in federal troops in Arkansas to desegregate the Little Rock schools and keep order and peace there. But no one spoke about civil rights and the clarity of the moral issue like John F. Kennedy did in May of 1963. So this is a man of um, great personal character in wartime, which is very important to me. And then he was a man of um, great public character with the defining moral issue of our times. And keep in mind, he was doing this all while standing up to the Soviet Union. Um, 
the Cuban Missile Crisis had taken place uh, just the year before, the fall before this speech. I want to say one other thing about Kennedy, and again, he was um, he was dancing a delicate on a delicate tightrope uh, with the civil rights issue. Um, he barely won the election, and he carried the South, but he also risked him, his electoral fortunes in the 1960 campaign by secretly calling. Uh, Martin Luther King's wife when Martin Luther King was imprisoned in a jail in Georgia and letting her know that he had concern for that. And that got out to many black voters and um, it turned them in Kennedy's direction. I think many black voters had voted Republican. Especially in the South. You're absolutely right. Yes. Not all of them, but many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that that endeared them or that endeared Kennedy to them, I should say. Um you know, the, the other things about JFK that I think we need to look at are, of course, you know, you've got many things like his style and persona and intelligence and wit. Um, and a, he's, he had a beautiful wife, of course, and a beautiful family. But uh, he also uh, did – he took the, he took the, 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 the view that I'm going to do things that I can accomplish – I'm not going to sit here and uh, issue platitudes. We're going to go to the moon, and we're going to do it, okay? Um, He wanted things to get done rather than just make a speech. And that set in motion, those those ideals and that that pragmatism set in motion uh, many, many people years after his death who carried on his legacy. Well, I'd like to pick that up. You you mentioned about the speech, not just a speech. But why is it, I mean, we've had a lot of politicians give a lot of speeches, but you have Kennedy, as you say, give the moon speech at Rice University. We go to the moon in 1969. He gives a civil rights speech, although he wasn't allowed to move that legislation through. It's signed, um, 64, 65, that legislation is signed. He gives the peace peace speech. Uh, He signs a nuclear test ban treaty. And then later on you have uh, 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 Nixon uh, with the Soviet Union and SALT one, SALT two. You have Reagan with Gorbachev. So I guess why was the Kennedy oratory different in that it really was a call for action? Why do you think that was different? Well, because I think it was a call for action. It wasn't, and he put put in motion. Uh, it was a substantive call for action, and he put in motion uh, things to to um, su- support that oratory and to carry out what he wanted to do. His ideals. Um, he had a lot of smart people behind him, and we don't know what Kennedy would have done with a full eight years in office. Could he have been one of our greatest presidents? We don't know. Um, but you make an interesting point in that in the three short years he was in office, he laid the groundwork for many great things that other presidents followed up years later. Um, and, you know, we talk again about 1963, uh, and, and as I've you know mentioned, your book really well encapsulates what Kennedy did in 1963. But not only do you have the civil rights speech, um, but you also had the speech in Berlin where he stood up for freedom and, and Western democracy. Um, and then, of course, you had, the, uh, on the other hand, the, the peace treaty uh, or the, the peace speech that led to the SALT Treaty years later. Um, so in a matter of 17 days, you had three remarkable speeches that, that led to great results down the road. Um, LBJ signed the civil rights legislation in 64 and 65. Uh, Nixon followed through on the, the nuclear arms uh, test ban treaty. Um, and then, of course, you know, we contained communism, and Ronald Reagan uh, followed up on that uh, years later. Well, I'm thinking about the, uh, uh, the Berlin speech, and, then, and then, the Berlin, then you and I in our lifetime see the Berlin Wall come down. You know, know, I mean, I I think that you can Kennedy lays the ground. There's a trail that goes back to JFK on on that as well. Um, Just ever so, it's ever so slightly changing the direction of of this conversation. But you know, over the years, uh, much has been made about the shortcomings in Kennedy's personal life, and I guess how do we uh, negotiate between you know, not 
blindly deifying somebody beyond recognition, but at the same at the same time, not making their shortcomings become the sum total of who they were. Well, that's an interesting question, and uh, as far as I know, there's only been one person, maybe two, who's ever walked the face of the earth who was perfect. Um, and uh, I'm talking about, of course. Um, Jesus and his mother. (laughs) Um, But uh, you have to take people as complicated, um, you know, fallible people. And we all have our failings. We come with, uh, you have to look at people uh, with what they bring. Uh, They come with baggage. They make mistakes. And uh, I am not one, you know, who is, blindly uh, unaware of uh, John F. Kennedy's personal foibles. Um, I just look at what he did when he was faced with uh, uh, momentous moral challenges, standing up to communism, uh, speaking out for civil rights, uh, saving his sailors in World War II. I believe after his boat went down, he took the string, a rope of a life raft, I mean, uh, a, a life preserver, put it in his teeth and swam for miles in the middle of the dark Pacific Ocean to save a badly injured fellow sailor who had been burned when the uh, PT boat went down. I mean, that's tremendous moral character of, uh, of a, you know, of one kind. Um, people are complicated and make mistakes. Uh, I, I don't want to judge them for that one way or another. I think uh, the other picture I have on my wall is one of Martin Luther King, and and we know he was one of the greatest uh, people of our time, one of the greatest Americans of our time, and he had his own personal issues. Um, you just have to uh, appreciate um, the good and the bad in people. And if you look at the Bible, you, you had prophets who um, had their own personal issues as well, Solomon and David, um, but yet are revered mm-hmm. in, in religious tradition, uh, well, I mean, Christian, the guy, Jewish The, the guy who tradition. wrote the Ten Commandments uh, was also a murderer, so I mean, it's just, you know, it, 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 it gets, you're right, it, it, gets, it gets really uh, murky, but yet um, we've had other presidents, you know, um, since Kennedy, uh, I believe maybe I think ten, if I'm not mistaken, since Kennedy, but he uh, a man- manages to still more than fifty years after his death inspire us. Any 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 thought why Kennedy more so than any other president in your lifetime? You know. Well, I think it I think it goes back to you say inspire. You look at what he aspired to. He his rhetoric was aspirational. Let's go to the moon. We will go to the moon. Um, let's carry out uh, the founding principles of our Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal. Um, he wanted to get things done. He established the Peace Corps. He said, uh, let's take America out into the world. America's a great thing. Let's share it with the world. Let's build up the rest of the world. Um, he put his words into action, and he he inspired us. He inspired the best of us, um, or the best in us. He inspired us to do um, good things. He was not standing up, knocking people down. He was not dividing people. Um, I think that's part of the reason. Chris Geis on this uh, Memorial Day holiday, uh, apropos also on JFK's 100th birthday. I, sir, I want to thank you for joining me on the Public Morality today. Thank you, Byron. I really appreciate the opportunity. That was Chris Geis. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. It seemed only fitting, given this was JFK's 100th birthday, that my closing remarks be provided by the 35th president. He is speaking at Vanderbilt University in 1963 about the responsibilities 
of the educated citizen. But this nation was not founded solely on the principle of citizen rights. Equally important, though too often not discussed, is the citizen's responsibility. For our privileges can be no greater than our obligations. The protection of our rights can endure no longer than the performance of our responsibilities. Each can be neglected only at the peril of the other. I speak to you today, therefore not of your rights as Americans, but of your responsibilities. They are many in number and different in nature. They do not rest with equal weight upon the shoulders of all. Equality of opportunity does not mean equality of responsibility. All Americans must be responsible citizens, but some must be more responsible than others by virtue of their public or their private position, their role in the family or community, their prospects for the future, or their legacy from the past. Increased responsibility goes with increased ability. For of those to whom much is given, much is required. You have responsibilities, in short, to use your talents for the benefit of the society which helped develop those talents. You must decide, as Goethe put it, whether you will be an anvil or a hammer whether you will give to the world in which you were read and educated the broadest possible benefit of that education, of the many special obligations incumbent upon an educated citizen, I would cite three as outstanding. Your obligation to the pursuit of learning, your obligation to serve the public, your obligation to uphold the law, if the pursuit of learning is not defended by the educated citizen, it will not be defended at all. For there will always be those who scoff at intellectuals, who cry out against research, who seek to limit our educational system. Modern cynics and skeptics see no more reason for landing a man on the moon, which we shall do, than the cynics and skeptics. Of half a millennium ago, saw for the discovery of this country. They see no harm in paying those to whom they entrust the minds of their children a smaller wage than is paid to those to whom they entrust the care of their plumbing. But the educated citizen knows how much more there is to know. He knows that knowledge is power, more so today than ever before. He knows that only an educated and informed people will be a free people. That the ignorance of one voter in a democracy impairs the security of all. And that if we can, as Jefferson put it, enlighten the people generally. Tyranny and the oppressions of mind and body will vanish like evil spirits at the dawn of day. And therefore, the educated citizen has a special obligation to encourage the pursuit of learning, to promote exploration of the unknown, to preserve the freedom of inquiry, to support the advancement of research, and to assist at every level of government, the improvement of education for all Americans, from grade school to graduate school. Secondly, the educated citizen has an obligation to serve the public. He may be a precinct worker or president. He may give his talents at the courthouse, the state house, the White House. He may be a civil servant or a senator, a candidate or a campaign worker, a winner or a loser. Body must be a participant and not a spectator. 
At the Olympic Games, Aristotle wrote, it is not the finest and strongest men who are crowned, but they who enter the list. For out of these, the prize men are selected. So too in life, he said, of the honorable and the good, it is they who act who rightly win the prize. I urge all of you today, especially those who are students, to act, to enter the list of public service and rightly win or lose the prize. For we can have only one form of aristocracy in this country. As Jefferson wrote long ago in rejecting John Adams' suggestion of an artificial aristocracy of wealth and birth, it is, he wrote, the natural aristocracy of character and talent. And the best form of government, he added, was that which selected these men for positions of responsibility. I would hope that all educated citizens would fulfill this obligation in politics, in government, here in Nashville, here in this state, in the Peace Corps, in the Foreign Service, in the Government Service, in the Tennessee Valley, in the world. You will find the pressures greater than the pay. You may endure more public attacks than support. But you will have the unequaled satisfaction of knowing that your character and talent are contributing to the direction and success of this free society. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcast can be found at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.